Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, it's great to be back. It's been almost six weeks, I think. Six weeks. Wow. I mean, I was here last week, you weren't, and then you came, and I wasn't here, and uh, that whole thing. I mean, we had two people in the family with, with the COVID, and, and I thought I did. I just had a really bad cold, so I can I look forward to that COVID coming. Um, uh, surgery, just update you on. Surgery went well. They went in through the skull and cut that balance nerve, and I'm, I'm still, you know, off balance and, and uh, regularly dizzy. But, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, cannot, I cannot get the life-altering vertigo again, at least from that year anyway. And so I don't live with fear anymore of not knowing what's going to happen next or some kind of car crash or something. And hopefully, you know, over the months, uh, they say, I'll be ready for skateboard season and I'll get back to Matt Normal, whatever Matt Normal is. I wanted to thank uh, the pastors. They didn't have much time to scramble. They put me on the, suddenly put me at the top of the uh, surgery line. So we didn't have much notice and they did a great job of filling the pulpit for me and support staff that kind of had to fill in those gaps. Thank you everyone for that. We're starting the new year, 2022. It's off to a great start. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it might be just cause I was laying in bed for weeks on end, but I was, I was thinking, what are we going to do? We start. And I just thought, I just, let's reboot. Let's just like start over. At least for me, I was like, I wanted a, a soul shower. I, I wanted to like go to youth camp, go to Mo Ranch, go up on church mountain and rededicate my life. I wanted to like think biblically again and, and feel truthfully. I wanted to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. And I just like, let's just start over. Let's reboot. What do you say? Thought you could come along with a journey with me. <laughs> the, the big picture of reboot is just thinking. It's 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 live. It's thinking and living biblically, like in the context of within our culture, and courageously. That's what it looks like: thinking and living biblically in our culture and courageously. And and how that takes place. Uh, well, I mean, first thing you can do is you can buy this book that we really like a lot called Confronting Christianity wonderful author, and she does a wonderful job of like defending the faith, but also helping you like supplement your, your beliefs and why it's a reasonable faith uh, ideas to believe, and also answers questions that some of your friends might have towards contemporary Christianity and what, what it believes and why. Also, uh, we're going to have her. She's going to come and join us. If you'll mark the date, February 13th, she'll be in here and uh, leading from the pulpit here. I'll be interviewing her. Good times. I would love to invite you to join one of our small groups, but also the one that meets second this hour. If you want to come first hour and then go across the hallway, they'll meet second hour and they're discussing uh, what we're talking about in the pulpit first hour. So how to apply this to your life. So that's how it all gets going. That's how way it looks itself. Today, here's the big question that is before us all. And that is, what is your North Star for your whole life? What, what do you follow no matter what? That it determines, like it's, it's the lighthouse in the fog of life, in the storms of life that you go to and know that hasn't moved. That's built on a, form, a, form, a firm foundation and that's gonna define what's going on around us. And I, and, I say, and I say this like, not what we say defines us, but what we actually live out, you know, as it applies to major life questions like, uh, the nature of God and the nature of, of man, the meaning and purpose of life, uh, sexual ethics, uh, how to negotiate like everyday living, you know, like 
family and work situations. And I, I'm, what I'm proposing here is that you have to choose something to make those values in your life real. Because if you don't choose, you, your default will be to uh, quite often it's like the way I was raised or the culture around me, you know, whatever the, my, my best friend believes, whatever that might be. The idea of reboot is just to clear the slate and say, okay, let's just start over and just acknowledge what we can know to be true. And, and what I go to when I think about rebooting, like living a biblical, thoughtful, courageous, cultural life, I go to Romans chapters 12, 1 and 2, because these two sentences serve as this, this handoff between beautiful, dense, deep doctrine in, in Romans chapters 1 through 12 or one through 11, and then it turns to how to apply that in 13 through 25. And these two sentences, like, they hold them both together. And we're gonna just like unpack every one of those phrases and find out not just what it says, that's, that's pretty simple, but what do, that, what do those phrases mean? Here's 12, one and two. He says, therefore I urge you, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So last week, uh, I'd recommend listening to that sermon. I said last week was, what does it mean to be conformed to this world? What does it mean to be conformed to this world? And, and we started there because you can't like, you can't, you, kinda, you can't get out of where you are if you don't know where you are. You got to know what the culture is to know you're not to be conformed to that. And quite frankly, the pox on the reputation of the Christian church since its inception has been Christians that were conformed to this world. They didn't know the difference between Christian values and cultural values. And, and they, just, they just floated along like with the culture. I mean, like a, like a dead fish, a dead fish can swim downstream and they were just following the stream. And that's, that's how you kind of make sense out of how, in the years of church history, how did the church get itself involved in the mistreatment of people that were not in power? The people of color or, or women or children, babies, uh, the handicapped, whatever it might be. And when the whole culture was like disrespecting and persecuting and, and neglecting or abusing this people group, quite often church members were going and getting involved and throwing and burning and, or sometimes just being silent about it. How does, how does that happen? Well, this, this, this gives us insight. These are Christians that were conformed to this world. So, I mean, the question before us, it's easy to look back, right? The question before us right now is, how do you know if we're like conformed to this world? Because back then, there were transformed Christians that were acting contrary to the culture, and it was the Christians that were leading the way, the transformed Christians that were leading the way to end slavery and to cause fair treatment among all peoples. They were, they, it, was, it was the transformed Christians that were starting and building hospitals and orphanages and educational centers that could educate anyone and everyone that wanted to. This world that we're living in, what is this world? Well, if you want to know if you're part of it or not, how have you been thinking, feeling, and acting towards the, the climate that we're in of living by fear or living by anger? 
and, and, and judgment and kind of a self-righteous looking down? Are you, have you lost relationships or involvement with a group of people over something that's somewhat petty? Maybe calling them names, you know, forcing them into false dilemmas, either or, or making hasty generalizations? Because that's our culture. And you're just being conformed to this world if you're playing along with that narrative. That was last week. This week, this week, verse 1, look what it says, chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Clearly, it's a word picture. It doesn't mean literally. It means this. It means to give your entire life to Jesus Christ for whatever he wants you to do, regardless of what you want to do, you let him choose. It, what, it, what it means is this. It means to give your very souls over as, as, as an offering. And literally, it says as a sacrifice. Sacrifice means it's going to die there. <laughs> And then when you talk about the soul, I mean, you're talking about the, the whole, our whole, uh, what, what makes me, me, that has to go and die. So it's, it is, it's, it is death to my rights and, and, and my, like, I don't know, freedoms, my desires, my emotions, <laughs> my values, they all die. They just go up on that altar daily. That's the living part. And they're just dying because that's what it means to be a living and a holy sacrifice. What do you give daily your life over to? Is there like, is there something like above you? Is there something, someone that has authority over your values, emotions, thoughts, and actions? Not, not Not your thoughts, not your feelings, but something else that absolutely declares what is right versus wrong, what, what, is, what is true versus false, what is beautiful versus vile. And you go to that source as like the boss. Who's the boss in your life? Who, who runs that show? Who says the way things are? What, like, what alters your course when you want to go this way and that source is saying, no, you're going some other way. And now just obey that. There's a great little parable that got started in 1930s. It's been updated generationally. I'll tell you the new one. It goes like this. The context is a carrier fleet uh, engaging with a single Canadian, a U.S. carrier fleet with a single Canadian vessel. And it goes like this with the Canadian starting off by saying, uh, uh, please divert 15 degrees to the south to prevent a collision. And the U.S. ship responds by saying, uh, we recommend that you divert 15 degrees to the north to prevent collision. Uh, the Canadian says, negative, you must divert 15 degrees to the south. Well, the American comes on and says, uh, this is Captain Keith Wilkins, and I'm running this fleet, and we're rather insistent that you divert 15 degrees to the south so as not to cause a collision. Canadians say, well, this is Private like Thomas Johnson. Hi. Hey. And I'm going to say again that you need to divert 15 degrees to the south, which did not go well. And he comes back on and said, I'm commanding the USS Lincoln. It's an aircraft carrier. It is the second largest ship in the Atlantic fleet. 
I'm accompanied by three cruisers and uh, three destroyers, amongst other vessels. And I'm telling you to divert 15 degrees to the south or we will commence countermeasures to ensure the safety of, this, uh, of these ships. And the Canadian respond, well, I'm a lighthouse, eh? So you can choose. <laughs> so, it's a pretty obvious story. No matter how big and strong you are right now and how smart and intelligent you are, is there some other source that tells you, hey, you better head south 15 degrees or you're going to end up run aground. Is there something like this in your life? Where do you find truth? I love Sarah uh, Grove. She writes this uh, song about the, the, the word of God, the Bible. And she says, in contrast to that, we try on, people are getting fit for truth like they're buying a new fitted suit. Is it, is it fit around the shoulders? Does it fade when it gets old? That's where we find truth. Or a person that's living a life that's sacrificial, living sacrifice to God, they're going to go to this, God's Bible, and they're going to put this above themselves because it has authority over them. The Bible has authority over them, and that is what determines what is right and real and true and beautiful. The Bible is the authority, God's word spoken to us, and that is our lighthouse, that is our North Star, and we do what it says. And I mean, is that true in your life? Now, listen, just, just for the record, we don't, we don't default to the Bible and say, yeah, that's God's word because it says it's God's word. I mean, that's, I don't know if you understand, that's just circular reasoning. There's a half a dozen books that are from God that say in their book, they're from God, Book of Mormon. So <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't believe it's God's word because it says it is. We, we believe it's the revelation from the creator of the universe because it's been validated. Uh, as if you were writing a book as the creator of the universe, you'd want that validated to people so people could logically invest in what is being said to be true. And so it's, 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 it has over, <laughs> overcome all sorts of internal questions about its quality control, like the, the reliability of the manuscripts. There's nothing comparable to the reliability of the manuscripts when it comes to the Bible. Uh, there's a thing called higher and lower criticism that it continues to win conflict about. It has external uh, verification, external ver verification being um, other history books validating that the history in there is in fact true, or uh, a version of that is archaeology itself, finding the digs just where the Bible said it would be. My favorite external confirmation is fulfilled prophecies. I love how oh, you know, thousands of prophecies have, are very particular and specific in what they're saying is going to happen and then actually happen in that specificity. And the only way that makes sense is an all-knowing God who's also in charge and has, has sovereign power to make that prediction become a reality. I love that part. That's why we do that, because it's been validated so many ways for oh, so many years. It's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. You see, there's a difference. And, it, and because of what it's proven itself to be, it rules us. It tells us the way it is. As a, as a person of living sacrifice, it covers us and tells us the way to live, how to think, how to feel. And that life, that life lived in obedience to that book, that's a life that's a, a living sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing. 
how do you know, how do you know if it is actually the ultimate authority in your life? Because like, again, in this audience and with a lot of people these days, it would, it, we'd say, yes, it's an authority, that's for sure. But how do you know if it's the ultimate authority? And I think a lot of us will put that book in the top three sources of truth. And we might even say it's the top source, but here's how you know if it is the top source. We get tested on this one regularly. And here's what the test looks like. It's if, if you're in a conflict between what you wanna think, feel, or do, and it's in conflict with what the Bible says to think, feel, or do, and you choose what you want to do, you've just made a decision. You've just said that's the highest source of truth for you. That is what you're giving yourself to. That's what you are living as a sacrifice to. Now, before I go move on, because this could, I'm, it'll show up, I'm sure, but I'm not talking about passages that we don't understand. You know, there's a lot of them. I'm not talking about passages that have like multiple applications and we're debating that. I'm talking about things that we know to be true that the Bible says, and we come head to head with them. We butt up with them. And then we say, well, I know, but look at all of the cool kids. And when we side with that, we're saying that's my ultimate source. And I'm looking down. That source is looking down on the Bible and is judging that book. That's the sacrifice that I'm living for. And there's a sacrifice that's going to be paid. I know that sounds, I don't know, obscure and a little bit hard to actually put your hand on. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to just give you some examples of like how we know whether not it's in the top three, whether it's actually the top source of what, what is right and real and true, whether it's actually God's word in our life. Like, let me give you a couple of three major categories here. And the first one is like, if there's a historical conflict, right? Um, there's the, the, the Bible uses details in history to name places and events and people so that it validates the other truths that are being communicated in there. And so you, if you doubt the history, you're kind of, you're doubting the truth that's going along with that as well. So a really good example of that is the, the existence of Pontius Pilate. I know for most of you, you're probably thinking, yes, of course there's a Pontius Pilate. Well, here's the thing though, like that all looks good and all in, in your high school belief uh, and then you go to college, your sophomore history class, and the teacher, the faculty member with his PhD in history and archaeology says, declaratively so, that there is no such person as Pontius Pilate. He'll say that for decades we've been looking and there is no evidence that the man even existed. And I'm not suggesting that he existed at a different time or maybe ruled in a different location. I'm telling you that there's no such person that turned Jesus over to, to be crucified. And so there you are sitting in that class blushing because you, you kind of believed in Pontius Pilate and, <laughs> and the teacher's making you choose. Is it archeology span or is it this book? What are you going to do? And a lot of people blink right then and there and they go, you know what? I, I love the Bible and I can believe it without Pontius Pilate. And so that's okay. And so you just go in there and you go, well, he's mentioned in, in Matthew in the last couple of chapters, I'll just like, I don't need those. And it shows up again in, in Mark. Unfortunately, he's everywhere. Mark. And then there's Luke. Oh, there's a lot in Luke. Just throw those away. John. Just one, two references there. There. Wait, hold on. It shows up in Acts chapter 4. A lot of people don't understand that. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, Pilate is mentioned. So, Boom. 
I, I, can, I can live this life. But, but like, I had to make a choice. And I chose archaeology because it's science. And, and like, here's the thing. Or you could just say, I, why don't we just wait and see? Let those guys dig around the desert a little bit. A little bit longer. Let's see what happens. And this is like, this is true, based on a true story. Decades went by. There's no Pontius Pilate. And then in 1961, in Caesarea by the sea, they're digging. I mean, there's like this whole, there's this whole stadium and amphitheater that have been under sand for, for a thousand years. And then, and then 61, 1961, they find a dedication plaque and it literally read, it literally read this. It said, Pontius Pilate, the prefect, the governor of Judea, is dedicating this to the people of Caesarea, a temple in honor of Tiberius. Well, oops, we got to get these back in the... I'm believing in, I'm believing in Pilate now again. But what happened? Did you see what just happened? So we had to make a choice between archaeology and Bible. And all three of those are all in the top three. But archaeology got the first rung on the ladder because that's what you're submitting to. That's not living a sacrifice. That's not giving yourself over to. But another major section of, dis, of disagree, I don't know, conflict that we have is miracles. I mean, we live in a time, come on, you know, this era, this part of the world, miracles. You can't prove a miracle scientifically. By definition, you have to be able to repeat it. So it's a begging the question, logical fallacy. But nonetheless, it's like a scientific modern person can't believe in miracles. And so you, you got to come in conflict regularly with miracles in the Bible because miracles are attached to promises and God likes to show off his power. It starts in the creation story at the beginning. We don't need those two chapters, but it, that's okay. But you keep reading and then you stumble into Genesis, Exodus from chapter five through 13. You got these 10 supernatural plagues. What are you going to do with those? You don't need them. A lot of chapters. Hold on. Oh, shoot, next chapter is the Red Sea. <laughs> really, I mean, walking across dry land, two walls of water, kills an entire Egyptian army. That one's easy. And the prayer and the song that goes with it, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I'm just going to keep reading until I find, oh, numbers. 40 years feeding millions of people with like protein-activated oatmeal and doves that just show up. 40 years of that? Who needs that? You want to really get into some heavy psychology, especially as it applies to science? You want to know a book people love to tear up? Miracles is Deuteronomy. And here's why. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Exodus chapter 20, it says that Moses went to a mountaintop and it wasn't Moses that gave us some good laws. It says that Moses went up there and God Almighty, the maker and creator of all things, distributed to mankind natural law, laws that apply to every man and woman in every time, in every context. And when people believe that miracle, that has to be destroyed. And if you ever wonder why tyrants go first and foremost after Jews, and God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians is they've got to get rid of the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments say, thus saith the Lord. And a tyrant can't have that. So we can't have Deuteronomy in this Bible either. None of that. Those Ten Commandments, we don't need that. Then you get to the New Testament. Uh-oh, more miracles. Virgin birth. Well, anybody know virgin that gave? No? Okay. That's Matthew. And then... Hold on, Luke. So I feel a lot more comfortable with my values 
And say, well, wait, the resurrection, that in, unfortunately is in every one of the Gospels. It's the end of Matthew. If you'll be with me for a second. And then Mark, just a couple pages. Luke, my goodness, he goes on and on about this resurrection. Page after page. And then John. There we go. Now, the dead people stay dead, and it's all making perfect sense to me. Here's one of the bigger problems with if you're anti, it's called an anti-supernatural predisposition. If you have a, if you have a, you've already made up your mind, there's no such thing as miracles. And you look at the life of Jesus. Here's the problem. Jesus wasn't doing miracles to just show off. He was doing miracles to validate his claims and his promises. He was doing miracles to say, no, no, no. I know you can't believe this, but watch this. I'm going to do a miracle to prove that what I'm saying is true. So if you don't believe in the miracles, you don't believe in the, what he's validating it with. And so now you're looking at a whole lot of Matthew. I mean, pages and pages of Matthew because we can't have miracles in here. And we get to Mark only because it's shorter. We can get rid of some of that. Luke, yep, about every third page, every two pages. But John, good grief, this guy. He just like the whole, I don't, just the whole book for the most part. And we got, what do we have left? But I, like, I want you to see what's happening here, okay? What just took place? There was an authority of what is truth that's happening in my life, in my soul, and I don't want to be embarrassed for believing miracles or something. Whatever it is, I'm making a choice, and I choose, what, science? And I got to tell you, science has got a, had a, pretty bad beating in the last couple of years, hadn't it? But I'm still holding on to that. And that's not sacrificing your life. That's not a sacrificial life. It's holy and pleasing to God because we're taking the authority of God and saying, mm, it's in there, but it's not the authority. Now, those two topics served an example to what I'm seeing regularly happen in this context, in this culture, and that is Bible ethics. There's some passages in the Bible that are quite frankly, I don't think my definition of right and wrong is different than the Bible's definition of right and wrong, and someone's got to move 15 degrees off course to, call, to prevent a collision. Uh, some of it has to do with a lunch I had with someone and said, Jehovah, the Old Testament, I can't even read it. Jehovah's the God of war. He's a war God. He kills everything. And I'm looking at it like, what? And then I started reading it again going, yeah. I mean, in Joshua, you know, kill everyone. I mean, sure, kill the soldiers, but the women and the children and the goats? Like, what did the goats do? And I've had, frankly, I do have a bit of problem with the ethics of right and wrong when it comes to war in the Old Testament. And I'm going to make a decision. And I don't like Joshua 1 through 11. Goats, but goats didn't do anything wrong. And then there's first, first uh, Samuel, David. Ugh. And then at the end of first Sam, second Samuel, the very end of Second Samuel, you remember that last chapter with the plague? Yeah, yeah, I didn't like that much so much either. I mean, this whole war ethic and, and violence, we were, this is a true story. We were at Mount Carmel and our last trip to Israel, our little touring Israel, and we're reading First uh, Kings chapter 18. And this is, this is Elijah, and he's, it's just, he's kind of run out of, I don't know, patience. And he just says, look, let's get this over with. And so he turns in First Kings 18, he just says, look, all the prophets of Baal, meet me at Mount Carmel. I'll come up and I'll meet you there. And they built two giant bonfires. And he just says, look, this is how we're going to do. Okay, a little contest. Whosoever God lights this bonfire, uh, lights it up, that's the God that's true. 
And everybody else who follows, you know, and the other guy, the loser, every one of his followers dies. We clear it? And the prophets of Baal were like, bring it. And so they do their song and dance and the Baal bonfire never lights. And then Elijah says, hey, God, how about lighting this? And lights it on fire. And so our tour guide's reading this, right? And then she just closes the Bible. And I said, no, 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 you got to keep reading. And she says, no, I don't, I don't like that part. And I said, this is the last time you're going to tour with us. I said that in my head uh, and on the phone soon after that. And I just said, no, 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 here's the next sentence. And then Elijah said, round up all the prophets of Baal, make sure none escape that we might kill them all. See what she did? She said, I don't like that part. I'm taking that out. That's not her. She doesn't like that war theory. So in the ethics of Jesus, I remember a few years ago, there was a big saying, uh, I'm a red letter Christian. Some of you might remember that because they didn't like the teachings of Peter and Paul. And, and, uh, and so they just, I just want the ethics of Jesus. I, and I'm, I always went, have you read the red letters? I mean, there's a lot in there I don't like. And so there's some ethics of Jesus. The, where is it? We're back here. Uh, yeah, it, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and die daily. <laughs> uh, this is the one I particularly hate in all four gospels, so I'll have to get off. Uh, love your enemies. I can't love my friends and don't even like to, not to mention that guy down the street that I've always been annoyed with. He mows his lawn before eight o'clock. So I'm not gonna love my enemies. I'm gonna love Bob. So, and then when it comes to sexual ethics, right? I mean, by sexual ethics, I mean, you know, uh, expressing uh, sexual intimacy before, during, and after marriage, uh, all things sexuality, gender, all that. Just, can we just put it under this giant umbrella? And we could say, look, we've got to choose between what the massive, like, avalanche culture believes and how I feel about that. This, this tidal wave of these are the values and you need to submit to these. Or... Or you go to what the Bible says about what sexual ethics are and the definitions of things, and you have to make a choice. What are you going to choose? I just want to get along. And so it's just a few, it's just a few epistles. I mean, it's, I know it's Romans, and I love that book, but hey. And then there's Philippians, and then there's some more over here in Ephesians. You know, Peter says stuff, Peter. And we're just like whittling this down, aren't we? So we're all comfortable. How is the church supposed to be governed? I mean, we've evolved a lot. We've come a long way. Things have changed so much culturally. And like, if we have, then we should change the way we do church government if it's based on culture. But if the Bible bases some types of church government, governance on anthropological reasons, you know, like reasons that transcend time, culture, and, and ethnicities, then we have to hold to those. And if you don't like those, then all you have to do is go over here to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Peter, and you can rest at ease. And there, there's what you got left. All this stuff on the floor because you had to make a choice. See what's happening? I'm making a choice between what is the authority in my life and the authority is, I'm in this decision between the top three here and it's gonna be like what I think is right and wrong versus what the Bible has declared to be right and wrong. And I'm making a choice about my values. At the expense of what? 
That's what I'm choosing to give my life to. That's what I'm living a sacrifice to. And I don't have to understand the ethics of the Bible. I just need or, or agree with them. I just need to try to understand as much as I can and then try to apply them as graciously as possible in, in the relationships that I'm involved in. In summary, the passage says this, to give your body, your whole soul, all that it means to be you, all of your values, you give that over as a living sacrifice. And it means making the Bible holy writ as the authority. And it takes precedent over your emotions and what you think and what you choose to do with your life. The Bible is your North Star. It's your lighthouse. That's what it means to be living sacrifice. I don't have authority over the Bible. The Bible has authority over me. There's a word for this. It's lordship. It means that the cosmos is run and it's a monarchy. There's a king and the king doesn't consult. (laughs) He's not taking votes. It's not a democracy where he asks. He just declares. And then we obey. That's what it means. Do you obey? Could I say this? You're going to love obeying this king. It's a benevolent king. And you're going to want to do what he tells you even if you don't know what it means, and even if you don't like to do it. Look at the fullness of this passage. Look at 12.1 and look, what it, what it, look at all that it says. It says, therefore I urge you, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Look at the, look, I mean, leave the slide up there. Look at what it says there because the, It's saying you need to obey the king because it says it's your spiritual service. Spiritual in Greek, that word is logikos. Guess what the English word for logikos is? Logical. (laughs) It is a logical thing to follow and obey this king. Why? Why is it logical? Well, look at the first part of it. By the mercies of God. (laughs) By the mercies of God. In light of the nature of God, who he is and what he's done, why wouldn't you just withhold judgment on a lot of issues, whether it's history or or culture or ethics, and just say, you know what? I'm just gonna do. Who's the boss? God's the boss. Who's in charge? He's in charge. What are you doing? I'm just following directions. He says it, I do it. It's logical. It just makes sense because he's the one that ought to be in charge of defining what is right and real and true and beautiful by the mercies of God. And I told you, remember uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are dense with doctrine and the, the other part's application. So the first 11 ver- chapters are about where we stand with Christ, who he is and what he's done because of the favor of the loving God. And I was going to like survey a bunch of little fun verses there about the mercies of God, 1 through like 11. And I, just, I stopped at 5 So I'm gonna, because we, we're going to run out of time here. It's like, let me just tell you some 5 In just chapter five, let me give you three things that is declared about our identity. Here's how God looks at us, regardless of whether or not we feel like it or not. Look what it says in chapter five, verse five. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Says there, says so right there. It says we are justified and we're at complete peace with God. But I don't feel like I'm completely justified. I feel guilty. I don't feel like I'm at peace with God. Guess what? Doesn't matter. Who cares? I mean, I've missed a couple meals lately. I'm hangry like right now. And that's how I feel. And I'm one Snickers bar from my having my entire emotions change. <laughs> what really scares me about the frailty of, of my anatomy is that I'm two, maybe one hormone away from feeling like I'm a llama. And so feelings are the things that you put on the altar to sacrifice because they don't matter. They're the things that must die if, 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 if necessary, if they're not true. They need to be sacrificed because the Bible is over my feelings. Look what it says in the next couple of verses about the purpose of suffering and sorrow. He goes on. These are more truths. Not only so that also we glorify in our sufferings. What? We glorify in that because we know that suffering produces perseverance and pers pers perseverance character and character hope and hope is not going to put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Right? who has been given to us. That's a promise from God. And when you're in the midst of suffering and sorrows and, and you're like on this ash heap like Job and scraping you know, your scabs and you're like, there's, the culture tells you there's no purpose in that. None of this makes sense. There, if there's a God, he's evil. And this says, the Bible says, that's not true. That there are some, sometimes only pain can tell you the truth. God is using these various things to make you like Christ in all of life. And he's going to make you like Christ in all of life in these sufferings. So don't waste them. Don't waste them. He goes on about like the nature of what's true. He says, since we now have been justified by his blood, there's that word again, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? There's no wrath of God towards us. For if while we were God's enemies, yeah, I remember that, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Look at what that truth is saying to us. Whether you're intellectually or emotionally or volitionally is in opposition to you. It's saying declaratively, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you don't do anything. It's already been done because it says it's been saved through his blood completely. No more wrath towards of God, from God towards you. And that's why Christians will say these audacious, they sound like, like pie in the sky, oh, look at you, hopeful, wishful thinking. They'll say things like, oh, I'm in a perfect relationship with God. I am absolutely going to spend eternity with him, 100% chance. And you're like, why would you think that? I mean, look at your life. And you would say, because, I, because this has authority over me. And he made a promise and he can't not keep it. And so, yeah, I don't feel like it. I don't think it makes sense. And I'm going to act like it's true. That's, that's what he does. That book, that's our lighthouse. That's our lamp. That's our North Star. And it's written in a way so that we can, it helps us like choose a mate, how to negotiate friendships, how to live life as in the workplace or in marriage. It gives us meaning and purpose. It says, this is how it all works out. That book, that's a miracle from God. It is given to us and has been protected against higher, lower criticisms and all sorts of other things. There is no higher truth. And so today, the question before us is, choose. Choose this day. 
not if it's in your priorities in the top three, but what is the highest authority, the ultimate source that you go to and you switched your life 15 degrees to the south because it says what is right versus wrong, what is real versus fake, what is, like, what is true versus false, what is beautiful versus vile. That's what we do. That's what it means to be sacrificing our souls daily as a living sacrifice. And that's acceptable and pleasing to God. One of the easiest ways to apply that is to join one of our Bible studies, get involved in an adult community, uh, uh, join the discussion group, one of our small groups, because we're trying to all go through life. What does that Bible say? What does the word of God mean? Now, I know I don't follow the Bible because it's easy. I bet you don't either. Here's why, because it's not easy. Follow it because it's true. I don't follow the Bible because it works. I, frankly, I, you know, sometimes it, it works. A lot of it working is in eternity future. And it all makes sense later. But until then, I'm just going to do what it says to do now. Sometimes it doesn't work. You follow the Bible because it's true. And it's proven itself to be true under the scrutiny of believers and antagonists for centuries. And it still shows itself to be true. It's not true to me. It is true truth. When Jesus talks about that word, he says, heaven and earth, all of creation is going to pass away. And when the smoke clears and everything's gone, there'll be a few things remaining. And it'll, one of those things will be this. And there won't be a dot missing over a single I or a T that's not crossed. This is everlasting and eternal. Jesus... <laughs> He has a fun little lighthouse story. He's got a parable of the lighthouse himself. It goes like this. He says, like, what's your lighthouse? He says, therefore, if anyone hears my words of mine and then acts on them, obeys the king, then he's to be compared to a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And when the rain fell, right, and the waters rose and the winds bashed up against this house, it said, it says, it did not fall because it was foundation was on a rock. That person was a living sacrifice. But he doesn't leave it there. Ends with a bad note. He says, but everyone who hears the voice of mine and doesn't obey, he's like a person who builds a house down the beach and the rains came down and the floodwaters came up and the, will, and the winds smashed against that and that house collapsed because his foundation was on sand and his lack of obedience. And in the last, last sentence there, and there was great loss in that fall. This morning, my appeal to you is this. Don't tear out pages. Submit to what it says. And enjoy a life that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Regularly, daily, sacrifice, a living sacrifice your values, your emotions, your hopes, your dreams, your thoughts, and calibrate them to that standard and watch what happens. Would you do that and join me in making that the source of God's truth? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, lift up this moment to you. We celebrate your word, all that you did to get it here, that you wouldn't leave us alone without revelation of who you are, what you're like, and the meaning and purpose of life. 
There's a power of the word. The whole Psalm 119 is, or is written all about just the love that you shared for us by giving us this book. So, Lord, I'd ask that we would dust it off if necessary, get it off that coffee table and open it up and submit to what the king says or that we'd be a church that follows you while the world laughs, mocks, snickers, maybe throws things, tries to burn the place down. We'll do it anyway. I'd ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless us so that we might be a lighthouse for other people and they might enjoy the life that you have for them as well when they're surrendered, when they're sacrificing all that they are for your glory, not for theirs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.